0: Good morning everybody. If you are out in the hallways and you can hear me, please come on into the sanctuary as we're going to begin our um, adult Bible class for this morning. We're going to be continuing our series on anthropology. It's a little section in this uh, class that we're teaching on biblical doctrine. So we've covered several different areas of doctrine. And last week, um, our good friend Scott Huffman introduced us to the topic of anthropology the study of man. So let's say a brief word of prayer, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, thank you for the truth you reveal in your word. Thank you for the light that it is, how it cuts through the confusion. It speaks with authority, and it points us not only to what is true and right, but also to what is good. And I pray that you would give us a clear mind this morning and an alert mind to Grasp and understand what it is that your word teaches us about who we are and what our purpose is. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the topic this morning in anthropology, part two in our section on biblical anthropology, is dealing with what it means to be male and female. What is God's design for gender? Uh, What is marriage? And what is God's purpose for sexuality? So before we jump into... This section of teaching, I'd like to read for you what we have as part of our statement of faith here at Redemption Hill Church. We teach that God designed specific gender distinctions between men and women, and that these distinctions are set at birth. Therefore, changing or disguising one's gender transgresses God's design. We teach that marriage was instituted by God as an exclusive, lifelong, covenantal union between one man. And one woman. We teach that God designed sexual intimacy to be reserved for marriage, and that any form of sexual intimacy outside the marriage relationship is sinful and offensive to God. So, what we'll be teaching this morning is an expansion of this, but everything we're going to talk about is really referred to in our church's doctrinal statement, in our statement of faith. So, we'd like to expand on that today. But before we do, you might ask the question why is it that we need a statement like that? In in our our church's doctrinal statement, how did we get here? Why is it so necessary that a church would be clear as to what we teach, what we believe that the Bible says about gender, marriage, and sexuality? Well, there's a few different factors that have led us as a church to find it necessary to make a statement like this. The first is that we live in a day and age that is marked by postmodernism, it's a big word. But it basically means that there is no absolute truth. There is no singular authoritative source of truth. At least that's what our culture believes at this moment. And the reason why there's so much confusion today regarding gender and marriage and sexuality is because we live in a postmodern age. This postmodern age has given rise to the sexual revolution. In addition to having no absolute truth, our society believes there is no moral authority. So whatever makes you happy, go for it. As long as you're not quote-unquote, causing harm to anyone else, then you're free to do whatever pleases you. The sexual revolution has sort of metastasized into what we see today in the LGBTQ+, you know, add all the extra letters you want after that, this movement. And this movement basically is an aggressive push, not just for deviant sexual behavior to be accepted, but there is a demand that such behavior be affirmed. That we bless it, that we sanction it. And so you add all of these things together: postmodernism, the sexual revolution, the LGBTQ plus movement. And what we find here is basically this perilous pattern that was written about thousands of years ago. In Romans chapter one, we find that when a people suppress the knowledge of the truth, then what happens is God gives them over to increasingly unhindered expressions of sinfulness. And this is a demonstration of wrath. This is God's judgment on a society to say, if we reject his truth, if we reject his law, if we reject his authority over us, we reject his definitions of what is good, then he will basically hand us over to our own selves and say, fine, you make that bed, you lie in it. And this is his judgment on a society, and it leads to increasing um, destruction. So this is why we as a church have chosen to include a statement on these matters in our statement of faith. A few hundred years ago, it was just a given. Nobody felt the need to define it or the need to defend it because everyone agreed. But that's no longer the case. No longer does everyone agree. And you might say, so why make such a big deal about this? Uh, There are some who would accuse the church of overemphasizing these things, overemphasizing things that seem to be, to some, not the primary emphasis of what Scripture teaches. So they would accuse us of fixating on these issues. But I want to say this before we start. Please note that it is not the church that has picked this fight. It is not the church that has chosen to arbitrarily start harping on certain passages of Scripture. It is rather, in fact, a response to what is going on in the world. The world has insisted on promoting uh, these ideas and provoking conflict, provoking uh, challenges along these lines. And so the church in our age has been forced to articulate and to uphold what true followers of Jesus have always believed, What we're going to be covering this morning is nothing new. It is no new argument. It is basically an exposition of what has always been true from Scripture. And the reason we have to take such a strong stand along these lines is that if we compromise on these matters, if we compromise on what the Bible teaches regarding gender and marriage and sexuality, then we will be compromising key pillars in the Christian worldview. I've laid these three pillars out. These three pillars are creation... God's design from the beginning, what I've called legislation or God's moral commands, what he has always commanded and required of his people. And then third, the truth of redemption, the gospel itself. If we compromise along the lines of gender, marriage and sexuality, it's not just that we might get it wrong on one obscure issue. It's actually a compromise on these three fundamental pillars of the entire Christian world view. Creation is the pattern established by God for humanity. There's a reason why we always go back to Genesis when we address questions about what it means to be male and female, what it means to be married, and what are the bounds of sexual activity. We look back at Genesis and we see that Genesis is more than just history, although it is that. Genesis is establishing a paradigm for how God's creation is to operate. So it bears authority along those lines. And we see this truth, the the binding nature of God's creation. It's not only written on the pages of Scripture. We also see this truth written in the very fabric of the world we live in. This is the way that things are. God creates things according to a certain form so that they can perform a certain function. And he creates us to perform a certain function for a certain purpose. All of this is linked together. This is what historically has been referred to as natural law. Just like the laws of science, there is a moral order to the world. And this moral order of the world is not something that we create, it is rather something that we discover. What we are saying today in unpacking the biblical teachings on these matters is not trying to impose some foreign morality on the world. No. Rather, we are seeking to affirm that this is simply the way that things are, according to the way God created it, according to his purposes for creation. So if men and women ignore reality, not just ignoring what's written in Scripture, but ignoring the way that we have been made, then we're seeking to live in a manner that is contrary to creation, which is not just wrong, it actually leads to harm. Unavoidable, inescapable harm. The boundaries that we observe in nature, boundaries that are made explicit in Scripture, are for our good. And when we violate these boundaries, we suffer. Individuals suffer, marriages and children and families suffer, and society as a whole suffers. So if we compromise along the lines of gender, marriage, sexuality. We're undermining this doctrine of creation and the natural law that flows from it, which is the bedrock, one of the the fundamental pillars of our entire worldview. But what about God's legislation? Well, God's moral law, which is revealed in his commandments, is the direct instruction that he gives us in Scripture. And God's word reveals to us his will, And there are explicit commands, explicit warnings, there's explanations given in God's word that we must not compromise. Only the foolish or unbelieving will think that they can transgress God's law and come away unscathed. God's law, like his creation purposes, is for our good. And this is a second fundamental pillar of the Christian worldview. To know God is to know him as king, as ruler, as master, and is to recognize that he has authority. There's a third pillar, and that's redemption. We need to be clear when we talk about these issues, about the central truths of sin and grace and what it means to be fallen, to be broken, but also to be redeemed, to be restored, to be recreated in Christ. Our understanding of what it means to be human includes this idea that following Genesis Genesis 3, we are all born sinners. That means there's something wrong with us. And rather than live according to our sin, we are rather called to repent, to experience God's redeeming grace, to be made new. What we need is not self-esteem. What we need is not self-expression. What we need is not self-discovery or self-actualization or to discover ourselves. No, that's actually the problem. What we need is not to be true to self. What we need is to turn Christ we need to be saved we need to be set free from bondage to sin bondage to self and if we compromise on these issues if we if we give up ground and allow the world to redefine gender marriage and sexuality we actually lose the ability to speak the good news of the gospel to tell people about sin but also the grace that comes to sinners so we need to define sin rightly so that the good news can be good news, so that people can actually be rescued and set free from destructive and deadly behaviors. So our understanding of these matters as we go through this today, I want you to get this. It's more than just a few proof texts. This is more than just a few what, what some antagonists would call clobber passages. Maybe you've heard that term before. This is more than just a few verses scattered throughout the Bible that otherwise, as some would say, whispers about sexual sin. No. The biblical approach is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It's rooted in an entire worldview that is grounded completely from front to back in scripture. So that's all a long introduction, and now I'd like to try to move quickly through our material this morning. So let's look first of all at gender, what it means to be male and female, a biblical understanding of gender. We go back to creation to begin. I'd like to look at each of these pillars as we look at each of these points. Creation teaches us that God made man both male and female. And the differences are part of what makes us very good. If you go back to Genesis 1, God made man in his image, male and female, equally bearing God's image. So we're equal, yet different and distinct. We are not interchangeable. There's a distinction there. And this distinction, this difference between male and female is part of what God calls very good. We know that God made man and woman both directly, but he made us by different means and in a different order. He made the man first from the ground. He scooped up the dirt. He breathed into it and created man. He made the woman also directly by direct act of creation, but he made the woman second and by a different means. He took the rib from the man and fashioned the woman. So we've, we find our definitions for what it means to be male and female in creation. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. It, there's an interesting basis for humility here. Man knows that he's made from the dirt. It's hard to be proud. It's hard to be arrogant when you know you're made out of the dirt. But there's also an interesting point of humility here for woman. Although it's true that every living person born today came from a woman, yet ultimately woman came from man. So there's this kind of dual uh, foundation for humility even in the creation that neither man nor woman can claim to be superior. We're both made by God, both made in his image. There is a sequence which has significance, as we'll talk about later. But we find our definitions in creation, that God made us. And the implication of this regarding gender is that gender is not ours to define it is not ours to decide, it is not ours to discover. Our gender is received at birth because this is how God has sovereignly assigned it, and therefore our gender should be embraced, it cannot be changed. There is an understanding today, if you're familiar with the arguments, that there's a distinction between gender and biological sex. People would say biological sex is something that has to do with chromosomes and body parts and those things. It's a scientific objective reality. And gender is a social construct. This is what they would say. That gender is something that has to do with how you feel about yourself and how you present yourself. But biblically speaking, there should be no divorce between the two. That how we consider ourselves and how we present ourselves should match what we are from birth. This is simply recognizing God's hand in creation. What about legislation? What about God's law? Deuteronomy 22.5 Says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So we can draw um, um, inferences from creation, but we also have explicit teaching from Scripture that it is wrong, it is sinful, it is um, an abomination to the Lord, strong language, to disguise or to obscure our gender. We're supposed to be honest with the world about who God has made us to be. It would be right to say, therefore, that transgenderism, um, claiming to be something that you are not, presenting yourself as something that you are not, is sinful because it's disobedience, it's violating God's revealed will, it's lying, it's not telling the truth, and it's rejection of God's divine sovereignty, who he has formed us and created us to be, and how he has ordered the world. He has ordered humanity into male and female. And we're not at liberty to reject that or transgress that. So we are called to live according to our biological sex. God is sovereign over that, over our maleness and femaleness. It's not to be disguised or distorted. So while people want to differentiate today between uh, sex and between gender, the Bible teaches us that how we express ourselves is to accord with our biological sex. We must not divorce the two. What about gender? And redemption. What about this third pillar? Well, Galatians 3 says something amazing. That in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Does this mean that when Christ comes and when the gospel breaks forth... That these distinctions in who we are from creation and God's calling upon our lives and even the roles that we are to fill as man and, man and woman, does that mean that all that goes away? Is that what Paul is saying in Galatians 3? No. No. The simple point that Paul is making is that we have a spiritual equality in Christ. That in Christ, when it comes to our inheritance in Christ, when it comes to our standing before God in Christ, when it comes to the fullness of the spirit and forgiveness of sin in Christ, there is no difference. There is no difference, spiritually speaking, for those who are in Christ. There is a spiritual equality. And there is also a practical unity those who are in Christ, whether male or female, have a bond. We are brothers and sisters. We have this practical unity in Christ. But this does not eradicate the different roles that we are to fulfill in obedience to Christ. We have different roles in the home. We have different roles in the church. And elsewhere, the same author, the Apostle Paul, teaches about the importance of these different roles. So Paul is not schizophrenic. He's not saying one thing here and another thing in another place. Even more importantly, the Holy Spirit is not schizophrenic. The Holy Spirit does not contradict himself as he inspires Galatians and Ephesians and 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. No, it all harmonizes together. So we affirm that while there is this radical equality in Christ and practical unity that we have as man and woman, there are still different roles that we fulfill in obedience to Christ. So this is our understanding of gender from the standpoint of creation, God's legislation, and even from the standpoint of redemption. Moving quickly, what about marriage? What about marriage? Again, we go back to creation. We find the basis for marriage in Genesis chapter 2. As God creates Eve out of the woman out of the man's rib, And he brings her to the man. He literally walks the first bride down the aisle. And Adam bursts forth in song. He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Moses, the author, comments on this. This is his editorial comment in Genesis 2. He says, Therefore, because of how God did it, because of this first union, he said, A man shall leave his father and his mother, And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We find that in marriage, several different points here, marriage is to be one man and one woman. That's what we find from creation in Genesis. We find that marriage creates a new family unit. They are one flesh, There's this new family unit that is distinct from the parents and independent from the parents. This new family unit is joined together by God. This is something that God does as he brings the woman to the man and joins them together. And we believe that this is a paradigm for all time, for all people. This is not just descriptive of a marriage. This is the model for all marriages And what's interesting is that it is for all humanity. This is not just for Christians. Marriage is a human institution. It's not something that requires a pastor. It's not something that requires a church. It's not something that requires certain ceremonial things to happen. Throughout time, throughout history, marriage has been authorized or recognized in different ways. But the bottom line is, it's one man and one woman who leave their family, join together, and God solidifies them together into a new family unit. And we know that there's a practical purpose for marriage, and we see this even in Genesis. Marriage is for partnership. It was not good that the man was alone, not because he was lonely, but because he could not adequately reflect the image of God by fulfilling his mission of exercising dominion and filling and propagating the earth. He couldn't do that alone. So marriage is for partnership. The woman was created to be a helper to him as he carried out God's commission for him. Marriage is also uh, related to this for procreation. Marriage is the context in which children are to be made. And marriage is even third for pleasure. You see this song of Adam as he bursts forth in praise of the beauty of this woman as he's amazed by her. There is joy that marks the marriage covenant. So these are all the practical purposes Of marriage. But there's not only a practical purpose. Well, let's back up. I want to talk about legislation here, real quick. Um, So, in creation, we find the model for marriage. But this is all drawing inferences. What about God's law? Well, we know as we read through Scripture that God gives specific commands regarding marriage, it's to be a lifelong covenant. Jesus says in Matthew 19 that what God has joined together, no man should separate. We know that marriage requires sexual exclusivity. The seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20, tells us that we should not commit adultery. There's to be faithfulness and fidelity within the marriage covenant. Ephesians chapter 5 teaches us about male headship within the marriage. It says that just as Christ is the head of the church, that the man is the head of the woman. So there is leadership and, and a functional role that the man plays within the marriage. And that the woman is to respond to that leadership and follow her husband's leading. We know that the marriage is also to be Christ-centered. Husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loves the church. Even though they have authority and a responsibility to exercise headship, marriage is to be marked by sacrificial love. Love that serves, love that gives, love that sacrifices, love that forgives, love that shows grace upon grace upon grace, because that's how Christ treats his bride at the church. Likewise, wives are submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So, whether or not their husband is perfect, Jesus is, and He calls wives to submit to their husbands, not even for their husband's sake, but as their expression of worship and trust in Christ. So, marriage is to be Christ-centered. This is what God's Word teaches us about marriage. What about redemption? Not only does marriage have a practical purpose, but many of us know it also has a spiritual significance. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about marriage where, where two become one flesh, and he refers to this one flesh union, this mystery, and he says that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ and the church. This is an amazing thing, that marriage is meant to be a model of something greater, Marriage is meant to point beyond itself to this eternal relationship that Christ has with those whom he loves. What this tells us is that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate, but it points to something that is, and that's our union with Christ. This means that marriage is more noble than just earthly love. There's more to it than that. It also means that marriage is not essential. For those who are single, yet who know Christ, They have something that is more lasting, more significant, something that is eternal, something that human earthly marriage can only temporarily point to. We know that in the new heavens and the new earth and in heaven, that there's no giving in marriage, that this temporary human arrangement gives way to something that is lasting and permanent because it's finally here. The thing that marriage points to will one day be face-to-face, our relationship with Christ. So marriage is not essential or eternal. And this is good news for those who want to be married but are not. Or those who used to be married but no longer are. That if you have Christ, you have the thing that marriage points to. And so if you are married, recognize this. That your marriage is supposed to point to something greater than even your relationship with your spouse. So this is a biblical understanding of marriage. One man, one woman, Faithfulness, it's a covenant for life, and it points to Christ and the church. What about sexuality? Sexuality, our sexual activity is to be an intimate celebration of the marriage covenant. It's nothing more and nothing less. When we look at the doctrine of uh, of sexuality from the standpoint of creation looking back to Genesis we learn that sexual activity is a good gift of God that the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed sin is shameful sin is shameful but the joy of sexual union in marriage is not it's not We know in creation that God called the man and the woman to be fruitful and to multiply. This is, as one author calls it, sex in the service of God. It's for his glory and for his purposes. We find in Genesis that there's this crucial aspect of God's design for male and female. Without being overly graphic, the way that God made us uniquely fits together to fulfill God's purposes of bringing about children and and sort of being the covenant glue that holds marriage together. But we also know that the sexual relationship between husband and wife is one of the things that's immediately damaged by sin. As we read Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve sin, and rather than serving and honoring and enjoying one another, they start blaming one another and accusing one another. And not long after that, you see people like Nimrod even starting to deviate from God's design, taking multiple wives and deviating from God's design for sexual expression. What about God's legislation regarding sexuality? Again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 tells us that sex is reserved for marriage. The marriage covenant, one man, one woman, adultery is forbidden. Not only is sex reserved for marriage, we also find that sex is commanded within marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that the husband and wife are not to deprive each other. They're to serve one another in this realm. Proverbs 5 encourages us to be delighted with our spouses to pursue loving intimacy with them. And we also learn from a clear teaching of Scripture that unrepentant sexual sin is incompatible with saving faith. Unrepentant sexual sin is incompatible with saving faith. We find this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual sin is that serious. That if we continue in sexual sin, if we devote ourselves to it and allow it to become the defining mark of our life, that it means we have no part with Christ. It means whatever faith we may possess or profess to possess, Is not genuine. It is not saving faith. And this is where the rubber hits the road with our culture. And our culture finds this teaching to become incredibly offensive. This is not the only passage that rules out adultery or homosexual practice. I'm going to skip back here because I have it in my notes. But Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13 forbids homosexuality. It says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 refers to men who practice homosexuality as doing something that is contrary to sound doctrine. It, it puts them in the, in the category of ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. So it forbids homosexual practice. Jude 1, verse 7 refers to the historical situation where Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And it says that this is an example of ongoing punishment for sin. It's to serve as a warning. Romans chapter 1 refers to homosexuality, whether practiced by men or women, as being something that is an expression of dishonorable passions, something that is contrary to nature, and something that, is, um, that, is, that, that leads to God's eternal wrath, something that deserves his judgment. Again, so God's word clearly teaches that any sexual activity outside the marriage covenant is sin. And an ongoing commitment to such sins is incompatible with saving faith. But here's the good news. We don't only understand this sin from the standpoint of creation and God's law, but we also know that the gospel applies. The very next verse, after Paul condemns unrepentant sexual sin, he says this in verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the good news. God forgives and redeems all kinds of sinners. God saves people who have lived a life of transgenderism or homosexuality or any other kind of sexual perversion. God redeems and saves sinners. He cleanses us and washes us and justifies us. So there is no sexual sin that is beyond the pale of what Christ is able to redeem. The blood of the cross is enough. And so we need to be loud and clear about that. We've got about 10 minutes left. And what I'd like to do is ask a few questions um, questions that maybe are in your mind and questions that are often asked. And I don't know if we'll have time to get through all of them, but I'll do my best. Number one, what should be our response to those who experience gender dysphoria? That's this f- psychological feeling of confusion about whether you are a man or a woman or whether they experience homosexual attraction. How should we respond to people, relate to people who experience those things? Secondly, is temptation sin? And this is a large Uh, issue of debate in our day and age is the desire for physical uh, affection with someone of the same sex homosexual attraction is that desire itself sin or is it only sinful once you commit sinful acts and then third is homosexual desire the same as heterosexual lust are they the same thing or are they different so three questions and we only have a few minutes so i'll try to move briefly through this So let's look at that first question. What should be our response to those who experience gender dysphoria or homosexual attraction? Well, first of all, I think we are required to speak the truth in love. That's what scripture calls us to. We speak the truth in love, and this means that there must be no compromise. We cannot agree to call good something that God calls evil. We cannot treat something as harmless that God's word says is destructive. So we must speak the truth as an expression of our love for people and our love for God and his word. We need to call people who are involved in these kinds of sins to repent. And we need to warn them of the destruction that such sin leads to. It leads to undeniable destruction psychologically, physically, emotionally, and eternally. It leads to destruction at every level. And it is not loving for us to pretend that it doesn't. It is not loving for us to watch people Walk the path to destruction and say nothing. We need to speak the truth in love. But secondly, we need to speak the truth in love. Emphasis on the love part here. We need to tell them the good news of the cleansing and restoration and the freedom that is found in Christ. We need to communicate to them with compassion. We need to communicate to people who are enslaved to sin with the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus is this. He who was in heaven, enjoying the fullness of divine glory, set it all aside to come here and lay down his life for sinners. So that Paul could write, such were some of you. Jesus loves people. Jesus loves sinners. And Jesus has his eye right now, today, on sinners who are out there who do not yet know him. And he wants to save them. They are elect from the foundation of the world. God has set his eternal love upon them, and he desires to use us as the means to preach the gospel to them and to see them saved and rescued and set free and cleansed. So we need to speak the truth. We cannot compromise, but we speak the truth in love. We offer the grace of the gospel to all who would repent and believe. Now, to this point, I've been specifically referring to those who are not Christians, those who do not know Christ. What do we do when someone professes to know Jesus? And they're experiencing this deep and painful confusion about what it means to be male and female. Or someone who professes to follow Christ and wants to be holy and wants to follow Jesus, but they deal with this unwanted desire, homosexual attraction. What should we do in that situation? First Thessalonians 5 gives us, gives us helpful instruction. It tells us to admonish the idol, those who are out of line, those who are unruly, not doing what they're supposed to do. But it tells us to help the weak. It tells us to help those who are weak. There will be some who truly know Christ and have believed in him, but in their war against the flesh, they may still experience some of these unwanted desires, this unwanted confusion, this unwanted temptation. That is the weakness of their flesh. And our call is to speak the truth in love to them, remind them what's true, remind them of what Christ calls them to, but then to help them. Not to stand far off and say, I hope you get that figured out someday. No, but rather we are to walk with them, to bear their burdens, and to help them. To help them overcome their sin. To help them say no to temptation. To help them believe what is true and find confidence and identity in what God's word says about them. And not to find their identity in their feelings or their sinful attractions. We are to help them. We are to help them. We are to walk with them and to bear their burdens. Listen, the sexual revolution and the LGBTQ movement, it leaves real people mangled and broken in its wake. It leaves people damaged. And the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners, as many have said before, not a museum for saints. And so we have an opportunity to minister to people. And there will even be those in this church, Christians, who may continue to deal with the residual effects of these kinds of sinful thoughts and desires. And they need our help. They need our help. And we do not help them by telling them, that's just who you are, you're born that way and you'll never change. We help them by pointing them to Christ and the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel that makes believers to be a new creation in Christ where the old things pass away and all things become new. But as we do that, we'll need to be patient, recognizing that change takes time. Sanctification is a process. Nevertheless, we step in to love and to help people. And this is one way God desires to use us as the church. Second question, is temptation sin? Is temptation sin? The answer to that is both yes and no. James chapter 1 says this, and this would be answering the question yes. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is a kind of temptation that springs from our own flesh, from our own fallen desires. And that kind of temptation, in and of itself, is sinful. It is wrong. It is a desire for wrong things that comes out of these corrupt desires that spring from our fallen nature. There is a kind of temptation that comes from within from our own flesh that is sinful but there's another kind of temptation that does not spring from within our flesh it rather comes to us from the outside and this kind of temptation which you could refer to not as a desire but rather as an opportunity this kind of temptation is not sinful we see this in hebrews 4:15 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses But one, referring to Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's a kind of temptation that springs from our flesh. The temptation of desire that is corrupt and sinful in and of itself. But Jesus did not experience that kind of temptation. The temptation of a fallen desire. But he did experience the kind of temptation where there's an opportunity for sin. An opportunity for sin. And that's the kind of temptation that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. They did not have a fallen nature, but they did have an opportunity to sin. And they took it. Jesus experienced temptation of external pressure, but not a temptation that arose from his own corrupted desires. Jesus had no corrupted desires. He always desired to do his Father's will. So as one New Testament scholar puts it, temptation had no landing pad in Jesus' heart, nor did it have a launching pad from Jesus' heart. But temptation often has both with us. It has both a, a landing pad and a launching pad because of our fallen desires. So what does that mean about temptation? Is temptation sin? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. It depends on the source. The Greek word that's used in James is the word epithumia. It's the word for these strong desires, often referred to as lusts. And epithumia is not a neutral word. It's not. Desire is not neutral. It is morally tied to the object of that desire. When we desire Christ, when we desire righteousness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, That is a good desire. When we desire and crave something that is sinful and evil, that desire in and of itself is sinful and evil. Now, the the protest to this is some people will then look at the Hebrews passage and say, well, doesn't this make Jesus less like us and unable to relate to us? And I will say, yes, it does make him less like us in certain way, in a certain way but it makes him unlike us in a way that we desperately need. Think about that. We need Jesus to be like us, to be fully human, but we also need him to be unlike us. We need him to be holy. We need him to be righteous. We need him to be perfect so that he can save us. So this is important. We need Jesus to be like Adam so that he can represent us, but we need him to be unlike us, to be impeccable, to be sinless, so that he can save us. So what does this have to do with our discussion of sexuality? Simply this, while opportunity to sin is not necessarily sinful, the fallen desire and the craving and the lust for that which is evil is sinful. So homosexual desire, not just homosexual practice, is something that is to be repented of. Something to be confessed as sinful. And here's the good news. It is something that God can forgive us for and something that we can be set free from. Romans chapter six says that we don't have to be slaves to sin. We are not slaves to sin any longer. This means we are not slaves to sinful desires. We can be set free from that. And this is good news. When you tell someone that they cannot be set free from homosexual desire, you're telling them you are a slave of sin. And that's simply not what Scripture teaches us. And so I think some people never experience the freedom from homosexuality that they could because the repentance hasn't gone deep enough, because the confession hasn't gone deep enough, because they haven't received God's grace at the level of desire. They've simply been fighting it at the level of behavior. Help me stop doing this instead of, Lord, I pray that that you would forgive me for wanting this and change my desires, renew me, make me new within. This brings us to the third question. Is homosexual desire the same as heterosexual lust? And we are about out of time, but I will say this just in conclusion. While they are in a similar category in that they're both sins of desire, they're both wrong in that sense, they're both desiring sex outside the bounds of the marriage covenant, whether it's homosexual uh, sex or whether it's uh, adulterous sex or, or fornication sex outside the marriage covenant they're both sinful they're both deserving of God's righteous wrath they both require repentance they both can be forgiven so they're similar in that sense but they're different in another sense homosexual desire is different in kind and this is important we need to think carefully about this homosexual desire is different in kind in this way Heterosexual lust, when a man desires a woman or a woman desires a man, that is a transgression of God's design for marriage as a faithful exclusive covenant. So it is wrong at that level. But it is not a rebellion against God's order of male and female. It's not a rebellion against God's design of male and female. So it transgresses God's design for the marriage covenant to be exclusive But it doesn't transgress God's design for the order of creation, the maleness and femaleness of the sexual union. But homosexual desire is a rebellion against this order, a rebellion against what it means to be male and female. So listen, it rejects God. Homosexual desire, lust, is different than heterosexual lust in this sense. It rejects God not only as king, violating his rules. It rejects him as creator. It violates his design. And because of this, it is a greater sin. It is. It's not the same thing. They're both sinful. They're both wrong, but they are different in kind. And they're different in magnitude. So we need to be clear about that. It's not the same thing. And that's not attempting to minimize heterosexual lust as sinful. Jesus says if you've lusted in your heart, that is the heart that produces adultery. You've broken the seventh commandment, you're a lawbreaker. You're guilty of death, and you need God's redeeming mercy. But let's not minimize homosexual, homosexual lust either by saying it's the same thing when it is not, when it is not. So in conclusion, let's wrap all this up. Regarding what the Bible teaches about gender and marriage and sexuality, let's resolve to be people of conviction and be faithful to the truth. Let's resolve to be people of compassion. Let's love people who are damaged by sin and deceived by Satan's lies. Let's resolve to be people who are committed to personal holiness and obedience. Everything we've said this day, today, is not just meant for us to evaluate the world. It's meant so that we can understand what it means to be holy and blameless before God. Let's devote ourselves to that. And then lastly, let's devote ourselves to discipleship. Because the world is, is pressing on this on this truth and urging us to compromise, we have to teach the next generation what God's word says. We have to pass down these truths so that these fundamental pillars of the Christian worldview, the doctrine of creation, God's moral authority in his law, and the truth of the gospel itself, so that those three pillars are not undermined. So I hope that's been helpful for you. We will have a QA and a section Uh, in a few weeks. So write down any questions you have. Let me know ahead of time if they're stumpers so that we can maybe cheat and plan ahead, and we'll look forward to that discussion. So you all are dismissed. We'll see you back here in 12 minutes for our morning worship service.